Welcome to The Public Morality. Ernest Hemingway is perhaps the most influential writer of the 20th century. As narrator of Ken Burns' documentary on Hemingway, Peter Coyote said, For three decades, people who never read a word he had written thought they knew him. The external Hemingway, the avatar, that he created was all things masculine. But the internal Hemingway was far more complicated, a departure from the version he tried so hard to portray to the outside world. To discuss the life of Ernest Hemingway, I'm joined by Professor Nancy Sindler. Professor Sindler is the author of Influencing Ernest Hemingway, The People and Places That Shaped His Life and Work. Professor Nancy Sindler, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you, Byron. It's great to be here. Um, I, w- I want to begin, uh, my first question is sort of a moving target, but who is Ernest Hemingway to you in the present moment? To quote Marlena Dietrich, he's the most fascinating man I know. And I picked up that quotation. She wrote, uh, she was interviewed by a New York newspaper in the 1950s. And that was the title of the article. And in, in that article, she said, he does things most men only dream about. And I've had the opportunity to research his life. I've been to all of his homes. And so I think as a person, he really was a, a fascinating individual. He did a lot of things. He was very smart, very hardworking, but also a great athlete and sportsman. And then, of course, he revolutionized American literature, both in what he wrote about, he introduced some topics that had been previously taboo, and then he also wrote in a different way. He simplified the style. And so he's interesting on two two levels, his personal life and then his his life as a writer. You know, you, you mentioned that about his personal style. Some refer to it as the Hemingway style. From your perspective, what is the Hemingway style? We hear so much about it. Could you explain? Well, a lot of people start out explaining that he initially um, started writing as a journalist. And I actually got involved with Hemingway because I taught American literature at his high school. So though I wasn't his teacher, um, I was privy to some of his high school writing and his transcripts and things that he did as an adolescent. So as a, as a teenager in, in high school, he, he took the journalism class and he actually was editor of the school newspaper. And then when he left high school, though his parents wanted him to go to college, he went down to Kansas City and worked for the Kansas City Star. So it was was there he learned this journalistic style from the Kansas City Style Manual that says, you know, eliminate adjectives, uh, eliminate a lot of adverbs, don't use slang. And, you know, he's credited the Kansas City style with having uh, an influence on his writing from... After he, he left Kansas City, he went to Italy. He was involved with World War I. And then he went on to Paris. And there he met Ezra Pound, who also uh, influenced his style and then reinforced that whole business of not using a lot of extra language. 
So, I mean, when you look at his style, uh, it's quite different from his, his predecessors. And there's also what's called the iceberg theory, where he's only giving you a tip of the information. And what's amazing about that, and I see this all the time when I see Hemingway, is he doesn't tell the reader what to think. He will describe a woman as being blonde, beautiful, having a soft voice, and he'll, you know, put in other details. He'll let the reader come to the conclusion that, oh, she's beautiful. Oh, I like her. He doesn't say to the reader, oh, she was a beautiful woman, and the male character in the story is madly in love with her. So he, he pulls the reader into his stories by just giving you details, and a lot of it comes out in dialogue. And though Hemingway has been copied in terms of his simplicity in writing, I don't think anyone really comes close to him in developing this whole idea of the iceberg theory. I, I just want to add, um, you, you mentioned when you, you taught Hemingway in high school, that wasn't just any random high school where you, where you were teaching Hemingway. It was actually his high school that he attended. Is that correct? That's correct. <laughs> yes, I loved teaching Hemingway. And in fact, at the end of the Hemingway unit, one of the units said, ah, Mr. Sindelar, were you his teacher? And the class was like, no, she couldn't be a teacher. So I, I always want to make that clear. <laughs> now, when you talk about Hemingway today um, and how you view him today, has has that perspective evolved for you? Well, yeah. Um, but one thing, I'm I'm older, so I think we all, you know, are introduced to Hemingway either as high school students or college students, and you think, gee, you know, this is an, an interesting book. But when you read Hemingway as a mature reader, it's a totally different book. So, I mean, I've had the opportunity to teach Old Man in the Sea to high school students and to adults. You, you know, it's funny you would mention... 15-year-olds, they uh. say, oh. Yeah, they say, yeah, it's a story about this guy that caught a fish. And then the shark sees it. And yeah, that's pretty good. Well, I mean, when you teach Hemingway to adult learners, they see that, you know, here's a, an old fisherman that's trying to recapture the vitality of his youth. And, and you know, how do you do this as, as a mature person? And it, it connects in a totally different way. So, um, certainly his writing has evolved, as I have studied him over the years, and also, so has his life. I've had the opportunity to visit all of his homes. I spent 30 years of my life in Oak Park, which is where he was raised. I've been to Italy, I've been to Paris, I've been to Key West, I've been to Cuba. I was the writer-in-residence at Hemingway's home in Sun Valley. And I've had the opportunity to stay at his favorite hotel in Paris, which is the Paris Ritz. So I think when you sit 
stay at someone's house and you're you're in in their home and you see their possessions and their lifestyle, um, you get a flavor for what their life was like. And it certainly had a tremendous variety of environments in which he lived, in which he worked. Well, I'm glad you segue there because I want to talk about some of those environments, just get your uh, thought on them. You know, for as much as I personally appreciated the work by uh, Ken Burns and Len Novick, uh, the, the recent documentary on Hemingway, it, it seems to truly do justice to his life. You need multiple documentaries. I mean, there's Hemingway the writer, there's Hemingway and death, there's Hemingway and the women in his life, there's the Oak Park Hemingway, there's the Paris Hemingway, there's the Key West Hemingway, there's the Finca Hemingway, the, you, I mean, the Ketchum Hemingway. You, I mean, you, you get my drift. How, how do you see that? Well, it's definitely a daunting task to write about Ernest Hemingway or to do a documentary on Hemingway. You have to keep all these things straight. He's going from place to place. He has four wives, uh, numerous homes. And in the meantime, you know, he's writing novels. Where is he? What is he working on? When he's not writing a novel, he's a journalist. So, I mean, part of the time he's working for the Kansas City Star. Part of the time he's working for the North American Newspaper Alliance. And so... Keeping the, just the chronology of his life and where he is and with whom he's married to is a challenge. So I think the documentary did a pretty good job of that. I, I think there was some amazing footage in there of, of his adventures and his homes and, and you see his, his wives. Um, I have, some issues with it. Uh, being from Oak Park, uh, I, I know quite a bit about the first 18 years of his life. And the documentary says several times that he had a troubled and conflicted youth. And I don't think that was fair because really the first 18 years of his life were idyllic. Uh, he had parents. He lived with both his parents. They had high expectations. They were very religious and very strict. There was no drinking, no card playing, no dancing, no smoking in the Hemingway home. He was required to go to church. He took a test on the Bible. So, and and then the, the parents with the high expectations also put him in an environment where he went to very good schools. He was close to Chicago, and his mother was very involved with music, so he had the opportunity to go to the symphony and the orchestra. And then in the summer, he went to Walloon Lake, where his father taught him to hunt and fish, and that developed a lifelong love of the outdoors. So he was, those were the first 18 years of his life, with this intact family and these great opportunities. And, you know, two environments and that, that two environment thing lasted throughout his entire life. He was frequently living in two places at the same time. So the documentary was great. I, there were pieces that I think they, that business about the troubled and conflicted youth, they focused on a letter that his mother had written when he was 21 where he was supposed to be doing chores at the family 
home in, in Michigan and he wasn't, he didn't have a job and his mother was kind of like, you know, get through it, get your ass together. But his act was together definitely for the first 18 years of his life. Uh, is it possible in your view to delineate Hemingway the writer from the public persona or are those just inextricably linked? I think they're very linked. Uh, his writing was clearly based on his personal experiences. So, you know, you look at A Farewell to Arms, that's linked on his experience as an ambulance driver in, in World War One. You look at Sun Also Rises, that's linked to his experience of, of living in Paris and then going to uh, the bullfights in, in Spain. So, I mean, that said, it was dangerous to be Hemingway's friend because he'd show up in a book. So his friends in Paris saw themselves in South Horizons. And you know, they were drinking, they were promiscuous, they were fighting. They're not always delineated in a, a positive way. I mean, he, he makes the point in his letters that he writes about the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he did. So, um, you know, the, the writing isn't totally one-on-one -on -one with his personal experiences, but it was certainly based on his personal experiences. And throughout his life, he kept notebooks and would jot down observations of settings, observations of people, and they would show up in a book. When you, you know, consider this life, uh, on one end of the spectrum, you know, you, I mean, this guy is interfacing with Gertrude Stein. You mentioned Ezra Pound earlier, uh, Scott Fitzgerald, Pablo Picasso before he was Picasso. Then the other end of the spectrum toward the end of his life, there's Fidel Castro. I mean, this is an incredibly rich life that I think would just organically cultivate, um, curiosity and it's not something you can really make up. It's almost like, you know, Forrest Gump in real life. Right. Well, I, I view his life as a series of concentric circles. He's always reaching out for new love and new adventures. And, and I think he does that in part to stimulate his writing. So, I mean, there are people out there that think, well, you know, too, he didn't really like Oak Park. I don't think that's true. I think he got a great education there. But then, you know, oh, what happened? He goes on to Italy. Then he goes on to Paris. Well, those environments are very different from Oak Park. And, you know, from Paris, he goes to Key West. And so he is always um, reaching out to new people and, and to new activities. And he has the kind of personality that allows him to do that. When he was young, he was very handsome. He has this engaging smile. He's a storyteller. So, and he, you know, as his life progresses, he's got all these amazing stories to tell. And, and so he, he makes friends easily. Not to say he didn't have a few enemies along the way, but he does make friends very easily. And people, were attracted to him. Certainly as he gained fame, I mean, it was like, oh my gosh, there's Ernest Hemingway. And he just had this interesting life. 
Um, certainly a lot of his friendships were based on his interest in hunting and fishing. So I, I have a picture of him with Charles Ritz in the Ritz Hotel in Paris. So what does Ernest Hemingway have in common with Charles Ritz in Paris? I mean, Charles Ritz is the son of the founder of the Ritz Hotel. Uh, let me ask you, um, in the photo um, with, with Carl Ritz, was that before or after he shot up the bathroom? <laughs> um, yeah, I think probably before. I don't know. But, but, but they, they, Charles Ritz named the fancy restaurant in the hotel La Espadon, which means swordfish. There are no swordfish in Paris. I mean, he and Hemingway cooked this kind of stuff up. And, and so he has this amazing collection of friends, partly based on fishing and hunting. Speaking with Professor Nancy Sindler about the life of Ernest Hemingway, Professor Sindler is the author of Influencing Hemingway, The People and Places That Shaped His Life. Uh, Professor Sindler, paraphrasing uh, Hemingway, he said that his writing appealed uh, to highbrow as well as lowbrow, and and I don't know, I don't know if that's really an. I, I know how people take that, and I know in the twenty first century that may sound politically incorrect. But if we drill down, um, isn't there a uniqueness to his writing? And you sort of touched on it earlier with with the, with the iceberg analogy that it is much deeper than what we sort of take on the surface as the Hemingway style. Right. I I think um, you know, he was he was right in saying that in a way the documentary does the same thing, in that it you know, he has this interesting life. He writes novels that on the surface have a a, a simple plot. Um, you know, it might be, he, he likes to write about love and war. I mean, certainly that was the basis for a farewell to arms and the basis for, for whom the bell tolls. So, you know, on the, on the surface, there's this conflict. Who's going to win the war? Uh, how is this love story going to turn out? So that's, that's kind of the, the basic level of his, his stories. And, and then, as you said, though, there is a, a totally deeper meaning, and it, this theme kind of runs through all of his novels, and that is, how does man face tough situations? He's constantly looking at, how does man face death? How do you show courage um, in a life-threatening situation? And so, World War One was really a, a turning point in Hemingway's life because he grew up with these grandfathers who were veterans of the Civil War and his grandfathers were saying, oh, this is how man shows courage, there's hand-to-hand combat, and you know, he's got to be good with a sword. And then in World War One, he sees how these soldiers become passive victims. They get blown up in trenches. So that makes Hemingway think, wait a minute, you know, what is courage in the modern world, the modern world being defined as post-World War One. Hmm. So his books show men showing grace under pressure. So in his hero, one of his heroes in Sun Also Rises, is the bullfighter. 
who tempts the bull to get closer and closer and closer. And he doesn't run away. He's a, an excellent bullfighter. And that was Hemingway's fascination with the bullfight, was that it, it featured people facing death and placed under pressure. In For Whom the Bell Tolls, the hero of the novel, Robert Jordan, is on the losing side of the war. You know he's going to die at the end of the novel. But he makes this comment that, you know, he has fought for what he believed in for over a year, and the world is a beautiful place, and he's very sorry to leave it. So that's the deeper level of the Hemingway books. And when you, you drill down to that, it really gives you a, a, a philosophy of life that is as relevant today as when Hemingway wrote those books. 60 plus years ago, or even more. And um, still grappling with the writer and the myth, however one thinks about Hemingway and his relationship with women, I, I want to specifically have you talk about the importance of his second wife, um, Pauline Pfeiffer, in making Hemingway the writer and the myth. Well, so as we said, Hemingway was married four times. And with the exception of wife number three, uh, Martha Gellhorn, the three wives really bought into supporting the idea of Hemingway, the writer. And Hadley, his first wife, had a small trust fund. And so he, they used that to finance their time in Paris, but I mean, it was a very small trust fund, and if you read Movable Feet, he will tell you how frugally they lived. And yet, um, Hadley was, was willing to go along with this, this whole routine. Pauline was very, very wealthy. Her family owned Warner Pharmaceuticals and Richard Hudnut Cosmetics. And so she had a pipeline to money. So when they moved to from Paris to Key West, uh, Pauline's family purchased a home for them. They had help. All Ernest had to do was write. Pauline managed the home, the children, and paid most of the bills. Um, also, Pauline's uncle, Uncle Gus, we should all be so lucky to have an uncle. Indeed. Uncle Gus <laughs> was fascinated with Ernest Hemingway and his adventures. And I think he sort of lived vicariously through Hemingway's writing and some of the things he did. So Uncle Gus uh, buys their house in Key West. Uh, and he also is the funder for the uh, safari. That, he, that Pauline and Ernest and some others went on in, during the 30s. And at that time, it was $25,000, which was a huge amount of money. So you know, Ernest starts out, um, you know, shooting squirrels and ducks and things like that in Michigan. And then he goes on this African safari, and he's shooting lions and hippopotamus and and huge animals, and he's just loving it. 
So this is all part of the Pfeiffer contribution to the life of Ernest Hemingway. So what did Pauline Pfeiffer do for him? She allowed him the time and the resources to write. By that time, by the time he was married to Pauline, he was the father of three. And Pauline set up trust funds, not only for her two children that she had with Ernest, but also with the boy that Ernest had with Hadley. So she's taking care of finances. And then also funding trips. I mean, the, the safari is one. They also go to Spain so that he can study the bullfight. And that results in death in the afternoon. So, yes, I mean, Pauline Pfeiffer certainly uh, supported Hemingway in every possible way. Now, now um, I want to move to uh, Martha Gellhorn ever so briefly. And I, and I think that I'm probably in the minority, at least, the way the common uh, commonly accepted view, she's uh, Martha Gellhorn is portrayed uh, as the woman who stood up uh, to Ernest Hemingway. My view is that that relationship was a little more complicated, and I think she gets a pass in some areas uh, because it's Hemingway uh, that she wouldn't ordinarily get. And I'm speaking specifically on how she actually even met him at in Sloppy Joe's. Well, you know, Hemingway has this reputation as a womanizer. But I always make the point that the women were very attracted to him. So Hadley was certainly ready to get married. And so when she comes to Chicago and meets Hemingway, she's older than he is. She's 28 years old. By that, in those days, you're supposed to be married when you're 28. So Hadley's wife, number one. Pauline's wife, number two. She's in Paris writing, uh, doing journalism for Vogue and covering fashion shows. She's got her eyes on Hemingway. And she befriends Hadley as a means of getting to know Hemingway. So then we get to Martha Gellhorn. And Martha Gellhorn is 28 years old. She's blonde. She's beautiful. She's sophisticated, and she knows that Ernest Hemingway is going to be in Sloppy Joe's. That's, he lives by a routine. Sloppy Joe's is not the kind of place Martha Gellhorn would just go to. He goes in there to meet them. And of course, at this point, Ernest is still married to Pauline, but both Martha and Ernest are very interested in the Spanish Civil War. And so that's that's the initial bond, but of course it becomes a very heated affair, and she ultimately becomes wife number three. So um, that said, when they were married, they were they were in competition with each other. She, Martha Gellhorn really didn't relish the role of being Mrs. Hemingway. She wanted to be Martha Gellhorn, the writer, and. So they were both always looking for the best story, covering the best um, situation. And Martha first is the first one to go to Europe to cover World War One, and she's working for Colliers. And she's right if you read the letters that she writes, 
keep begging Ernest to come to Europe and say, you know, this is where the action is. You want to come here and cover World War One, uh, World War Two. When he gets there, Collier's fires Martha and hires Ernest because being a male, he can get into war zones. And I mean, they they were having this sort of competitive relationship anyhow. But that was the final nail in the coffin of their marriage. Uh, when that happened, and you know, so she really left him, which he resented. Which gets back to your comment about shooting her picture in the toilet of the Ritz Hotel. <laughs> uh, one of the most fascinating aspects to me about Hemingway's life is there's so many places that claim him as his own. Obviously, Oak Park, but there's Paris, there's Cuba. Uh, Key West. I mean, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, all the places you visited. I mean, I mean, there. I'm sure you, I know you have stories about his time in Ketchup, Idaho. How is that possible that so many places lay claim, you know, you know, to the to to the life of Ernest Hemingway? Well, he's such an interesting person, and he had friends everywhere. So I certainly have experienced that. So. He was born in Oak Park, so that we have the birthplace home as a museum. From time to time, his boyhood home, where he lived from about the age of six until 18, is also there. His high school is there. He's on the statue of the World War I memorial in Oak Park. So Oak Park says, yes, yeah, you know, he's our boy. He's our favorite son. And then you go to Paris, and it's like, wow, yeah, but I mean, he had an apartment here, he had an apartment there, he, he loved Paris, he writes about Paris, he keeps coming back here, he stays at the Ritz during World War II, he writes about the liberation of Paris, does he march down the Champs-Élysées with American troops? Oh, no. Ernest goes to the Ritz, to the bar in the Ritz, and buys everyone drinks and liberates the rich. So the Parisians love him. Then you go to Cuba. And so I was in Cuba the first time in 2011, and I was, you know, one of two Americans there at the time. And people would say, oh, you know, he didn't like Oak Park. He, he, Cuba was his home. And I'm like, oh, no. I mean, <laughs> Oak Park was really important. And that's why I wrote the book, Byron. I felt I had to set the record straight. But they, uh, the Cubans are very quick to tell you that he lived in Cuba longer than he lived anywhere else. He lived there for 22 years. And they count him as theirs. There's even, so there's a U.S. stamp with Hemingway's picture on him, on it. But there's also a Cuban stamp with Hemingway's picture. And it's, it's Hemingway with this big swordfish in the background. So they claim him as theirs. So then you go to Sun Valley, or Ketchum. Same deal. They loved him there. So he went there initially to hunt. And he had all these friends, these hunting buddies, that he would go and hunt. And, and towards the end of his life, he was married to Mary Welch Hemingway. And she was a wonderful hostess and brought in, like the wives, into the Hemingway program, was a good cook. And so he'd hunt for ducks and pheasants and all this game. 
And he would cook it, and they'd invite their friends, and they had this beautiful home. And so he's got all these friends there, too. Um, so, yeah, you're right. I mean, he, he just moved around, and the, the force of his personality, and, of course, as time went on, also the force of his fame, made him very popular. Um, I, I want to sort of touch on some of the aspects of your research in your book about, about Hemingway's life. Uh, in, in your view, uh, what were the influences that caused him to, to craft that uber, my words, uber-masculine persona? Was, it, was there something in, in your research that you, that you uncovered that sort of promoted him or propelled him to say, I, I'm going to create this image uh, about myself? I, I think it was pretty true. He, he loved the outdoors, and this goes back to his parents, uh, you know, taking him up to Michigan. He learned to fish, he learned to hunt. His mother, who was, you know, the, mo- the mother of six children, supported that whole cause. I mean, she went up there with her children uh, from the time they were babies until they were grown and lived in this two-room cabin and, you know, supported the, the whole outdoor adventure cause. So he learned to love the outdoors, and it really became his place of refuge. So as time goes on, so he loves to hunt. All right, well, so he's learned to hunt. He's a, he's a good shot. And then, you know, he has people like Uncle Gus and his wife who will pay for a trip to uh, Africa for a safari. He's loving this. So, yeah, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll shoot a lion. Yeah, I'll shoot a hippopotamus. Yes, you know, let's let's go after those awful hyenas. And he's, he's loving this all. Then, I mean, during the, the Cuban years and even during the Key West years, he buys the boat. And he, he has learned to fish as a child. Again, you know, little fish, fish fish, trout in a stream in Michigan. Well, when he's in Key West and in Cuba, the Gulf Stream is absolutely teeming with huge fish, 400-pound marlin. And so he has this fishing boat that he gears up catch these kind of fish. And if you read his letters, he's writing to his friends, John Das Passos. People are like, come on down. You know, the fishing is great. And so he's got all these buddies that want to go fishing with him. Um, so this interest in hunting and in fishing, I think, really propelled this persona of the myth, but I, 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 I don't think it was uh, something that he fabricated. I think these were things that he truly liked. And, you know, some people view it as being kind of violent, but, you know, his family would hunt and fish to put food on the table. So back then, when you, you go back to his childhood, it's it wasn't just a sport then, it was a way of life. And, you know, granted, he, he didn't bring the line home to serve the dinner to his family, but it was 
it was something that was a, an important part of his life. And certainly as he traced his footsteps around the world, he goes to Key West to fish. He goes to Cuba to fish. He spends his summers in Wyoming and in Idaho to hunt. And, I, you know, I, I just think it's really ingrained with his childhood and his personal life. And what what is amazing to me as a parent and as a grandparent is the tremendous influence his parents and his grandparents had on his life. And, you know, you, you sometimes think as a parent that your kids don't listen to you. And maybe he didn't always listen to his parents. But they certainly, both of his parents, had a phenomenal influence on his life. His father in hunting and fishing and an adventure. His father was a medical doctor. He was chief of obstetrics. And throughout Hemingway's life, he loved music. He'd go to any of his homes and there's records and, you know, uh, devices for playing music. That's the influence of his music. Mm-hmm. One of the things that Hemingway is really known for is, is, is the, 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 uh, some of his short stories. And I want to take a couple of his short stories and um, have you comment on them and, and, and why, why in, in your view, make them so memorable. And I'm going to start with The Snows of Kilimanjaro. Well, we talked about Pauline Pfeiffer. So The Snows of Kilimanjaro was the product of that first safari to Africa. And so, you know, while we say that Pauline was influential in supporting the family and providing beautiful trips, Hemingway had kind of a conflict about money. And so Pauline is very, very wealthy. Hemingway is now experiencing what life is like with the trust fund. And so Snows of Kilimanjaro talks about a writer who's married to a very wealthy woman. And the marriage is tenuous. And while Hemingway was in Key West, he was, he was concerned about his writing. And he, he actually leaves Key West because he says it's a soft life and nothing is happening here. So, I mean, you think about his life in Key West. He's got a wife that pays the bills. He's got a wife that supports his writing. He's got a wife that pays for trips. He's got a boat. All he has to do is write in the morning and go fishing in the afternoon. And he leaves because he says it's a soft life and nothing happening here. This is when he meets Martha Gellhorn and goes off to the Spanish Civil War. He throws himself into a dangerous situation to activate, reactivate his writing. So getting back to the snows of Kilimanjaro, it's kind of what Hemingway is thinking about. Here is this writer in Africa who's dying of gangrene. And Hemingway talks about the fact that the writer is rotting. Who's wor- who is he worried about writing? Himself. He's concerned about his own rotting because he's married to Pauline. The woman in the story is referenced as a rich bitch. Mm-hmm. And the author says to the woman, your money was my armor. So, again, we talked earlier about the fact that the stories are 
autobiographical and you may wind up seeing yourself in a story. And I'm sure Pauline understood what he was saying in that story. <laughs> I guess uh, the next one is, is, is actually, given the time period, I, I would assume rather groundbreaking, Hills Like White Elephants. Great story. Excellent example of the iceberg series. And you have this couple in a train station, a man and a woman. You don't know if they're married or not. And all they're doing is talking to each other. And as the story unfolds, they never use the word abortion. But the man is trying to get her to get an abortion. And the woman is not sure she wants to do that. So the man is saying things like, it's easy, it's just air, it's, it's simple, it happens all the time. And she's very quiet, and she's, she's saying, oh, but, you know, we could have everything if we stayed together. And, and it's this banter back and forth while they're waiting for a train. You don't know what their final decision is. It's just back and forth, back and forth. And it's kind of conversation that probably goes on all the time between a couple who realizes they're pregnant. At the end of the story, you don't know what their, decide, what their decision is. So I taught this class to adult learners. And in, just for discussion sake, I put the men in one group and the women in another. And so I asked the men, how do you think the story ends? Oh, he's going to leave her. You know, they're not going to stay together. She wants to have the abortion. She can go ahead and do it. But this is not, this is not going to stay together. And then you ask the women, and it's like, oh, yeah. She's, no, she'll have the baby, and they'll get married, and, you know, they'll live happily ever after. I mean, we never say either of those things, but that's a great example of the iceberg theory where people bring their own beliefs into the story and that way the story stays with them. So, you you know, you wonder why does Hemingway's writing live on? Part of it is that the themes are very universal. So, I mean, that, that story could be happening today, but also you tend to remember them because you bring your own point of view into the dialogue and into the story. Um, one more, which is um, probably, if, if we're going to call it a short story, is actually a novella, is his best known in that genre. Um, uh, one of my favorites, obviously, is The Old Man in the Sea. Well, we, you know, we talked about that a little bit earlier. I mean, that's one of those stories where the older you are, you read it, the more meaningful it becomes. And it's very meaningful to Hemingway's life because he wrote that after he published Across the River and Into the Trees, which was a disaster. And, you know, the critics said, oh, Hemingway finished as a writer, forget him as the all-time great American writer. And he was not going to let that happen. So... In the story, in the short story, it's about this fisherman that hasn't caught a fish for 40 days, and he goes out, and he's really trying hard to catch a fish. That's Hemingway. He's trying hard to rekindle his career, and of course he does with that book. 
um, you know, wins the Pulitzer Prize, and it brings them back as an author, and it's it's one of his best stories. And it and it, it you know it follows the Hemingway theme that we've been talking about is how does a man face tough situations? So here is this old man out in the ocean. He catches this huge fish, and then it's eaten by the shark. And yet he shows grace and he shows courage. And one of the great quotations from that novel is, man can be destroyed, but not defeated. And so at the end, you know, you feel that the old man probably isn't going to live much longer, but he brings in the skeleton of the fish. And even though he doesn't have the meat from the fish, he shows his colleagues in this little town of Kohimar, where Hemingway actually kept his boat, that he shows him the accomplishment of his fishing and of his life. And the book has a hopeful ending, even though it's very clear that this old fisherman is at the end of his life. You know, it's funny, I had a... Um conversation with a good friend who, who who is a deep, deep admirer of uh, Hemingway. And uh, we were talking about the old man, the sea, and it's funny because you sort of touched on this earlier, how he leaves this space, you know, for all of us to um, have our own interpretations of what it is we're reading. And I think he does, like you say, he does like no other writer. And, and, and my take in the, I will say the last 10 years of, um, in the last 10 years of my life, my take is unlike, let's say, Robert Jordan, where the subtext is that Robert Jordan is Ernest Hemingway. I viewed Santiago as who Ernest Hemingway wished he could be. That that, that you know that's 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 how I that's how I take that 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 that. Text. Well, Santiago is trying to reclaim his glory, so you're right. Byron, I mean, Ernest Hemingway is trying to do that. At the time he's typing out the text for that book, he's, he's busting his butt to do that. And he doesn't know it at the time, but he reaches his goal. Hmm. Now, now um, I, I, know, I know you have, um, you have some familiarity with those final years, uh, um, largely sad years and catch them. Could you talk about those from from your experience? Yes, I I had a wonderful experience last winter. I actually lived in the house uh, in Ketchum as the writer in residence, and my my goal was to go out and talk to people in Ketchum and Sun Valley who still knew Hemingway, or and many of them were. Uh, children of people who were Hemingway's friends. And so, I mean, those, those, those people are, are getting older, and I, I wanted to get to those primary sources while they were still around. So, the final years, what I learned was, I mean, Hemingway, as we mentioned earlier, was, was loved in Ketchum. And he went out there initially in 1937 to hunt and then they bought the house, he and Mary bought the house in 1959 um, after the, the Cuban Revolution, and they felt they really should have a permanent home in the United States. So that's when they bought the house in Ketchum. His life 
expressed Hemingway suffered from depression. And there were bouts of depression when he was, was younger, but they increased as he got older. And he self-medicated. I mean, he had high blood pressure. He was taking blood pressure medicine. His consumption of alcohol increased. And, you know, he was, he was on a variety of, of different medications. At one point, Mary talked to his doctor in Ketchum, and they recommend that he go to the Mayo Clinic and have electric shock therapy. Electric shock therapy back then was the cure for depression. And I, I have, was shocked to find out that it still is considered a cure for depression. So, I mean, there are more medicines today um, to deal with depression, but electroshock therapy is, is still considered one remedy. So he goes to the Mayo Clinic and has the electroshock therapy, and what it does is it erases his memory. So, yeah, cures depression, but it also takes away everything else. So as, you know, we have talked today, his memory, his experiences, his observations were incredibly important to his writing. And my belief is, you know, yeah, he loved to hunt, he loved to fish, he was attracted to women, but the most important thing in his life was his writing. And he couldn't write anymore because his memory was gone. And uh, John Kennedy asked him to be the speaker at his inauguration on the Hemingway's decline. But Ernest did write an entry for the inauguration book, and he struggled with that. So, so writing was a struggle, and because of the electric shock therapy, and there were several bouts of that. He had tried to commit suicide earlier and was stopped, actually, by um, a couple. And I, I talked to the woman. The man is no longer alive. But their neighbor, Don Anderson, was called when Mary saw Ernest in the vestibule of the house with a gun. And she calls Don Anderson, and he comes over, and Mary keeps talking to Ernest, and Don wrestles the gun away from Ernest. Some other attempts, too, but let me just say the final attempt, Ernest is at the Mayo Clinic, and he convinces his doctors that, yeah, he's okay. He will do the exercises. He will take the medications. And he's just fine. He wants to go back to his home and check them. What he really has in mind is he's going to commit suicide. And, and he, he realizes that people are going to try to stop him. So he takes Mary out to dinner the night before. And then early in the morning, he gets up and he goes into the vestibule of the house. He finds his favorite gun, puts the barrel of the gun to his forehead puts the toe in, his trigger, in the trigger, has a trigger, and presses the trigger, and ends his life. Mary initially says it was an accident, but anyone who knows Ernest knows he wouldn't have an accident with a gun. And so in, in the end, um, you know, it became clear that he took his own life. Uh, I was in, in that area shortly after he committed suicide, and, and no one wanted to talk about it. His friends were incredibly saddened. They saw his decline, but they really didn't know what to do about it. Now people are, are 
more open about talking about it. So he was loved there, and he just ended his life when he could no longer write. Finally, I want to I want to talk about the significance of teaching Hemingway in the twenty first century because we we've seen. Uh, sort of a zeitgeist, and not only questioning what we think, but questioning what we know to be true. And um, and I'm thinking specifically of, of a more, for lack of a better word, the more woke generation. So what do you say when people read, say, his portrayal of Catherine Barkley in A Farewell to Arms, or some of the uh, accusations of anti-Semitism in The Sun Also Rises, along with his use of the N-word and uh, is more than enough to render him a relic of a bygone era. And I, I wonder how you respond to that and make him relevant for a 21st century reader. Well, your examples are certainly true. I mean, Catherine Barkley seems dated to women in 2021. But you have to think about the time in which she lived and, and how the role of women has has changed. So yes, she is she is seems sort of old fashioned and very submissive. And yes, he is you see bigotry and anti Semitism in, in his books. And yes, he's kind of a product of, of the time in which he lived, given those examples. That said, in many ways, he moved beyond the age in which he lived. So he revolutionized American writing. He wrote about topics that had never been written about before. I mean, the, the example of Hills of White Elephants, no one even wrote about abortion. And and he he writes about people having affairs, people drinking too much. As I said, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He's trying to portray life as it is. And so his his topics are very different. And so in that way, he moved beyond his age. And then also, you know, we, we've talked about his style and the iceberg method. And that was new, too. I mean, you, you read something that was written prior to Hemingway. And it seems very wordy, very flowery, lots of adjectives, lots of adverbs. And his writing seems very simplistic, but it's that's deceivingly simplistic because as as we've discussed, there's a tremendous amount of concept content in, in the words that are on the page and in the spaces between the words. Professor Nancy Sindler author of Influencing Hemingway, the people and places that shaped his life and work. Uh, I want to thank you so much for being in conversation with me about this great 20th century writer. It's been an honor. Thank you, Byron. I've enjoyed it very much. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its new app. Using your mobile device, simply click on your application page, search WSNC 90.5, click open, and listen from anywhere. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, 
for allowing us to broadcast the public rally at their studios. The public rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the public morality, I'm Byron Williams. Yeah.